Lysenic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Hello and welcome back. I am thrilled to bring you the second part of my interview with Dr. Philip Reynolds, where we continue to discuss the relationship between war and the state. In our last episode, we left off on the topic of 9-11. The consequence of 9-11 was uh, a war that lasted a lot longer than anyone had hoped or wanted, and the, and the result that nobody uh, really anticipated or wanted either. I mean, we see now uh, incredibly uh, power-sharing agreement between the Taliban and the, and the Afghan government, uh, something that would have been seen perhaps unthinkable uh, back in 2001. But this is the reality of a regular mm-hmm. war. And I think you mentioned a bit of this in, in your work. The military complexes that spawned from them were spawned from the experience of fighting army versus army in a pitch battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the rules of the game have changed so drastically. Uh, and in in that light, can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between force and power? Sure, uh, it, it's pretty simple. Um, power is is passive. Power is what's generated internally. Uh, so uh, a, a large country like the United States, with a, with a vast population and this really uh, vibrant economy that just that just creates stuff out of nothing, right? That's power. Force is when you project it, uh, it's its active expression of power. And of course, there's there's the multiple ways power can be transformed into force. And uh, so, for example, you know, the Department of State uh, generally uses nonviolent means and it goes in to address causes of instability and insecurity, uh, things that might lead to the rise of groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda. Well, uh, the most popular way, and we can thank Hollywood for this and 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 a trillion dollar budget, is to take power, internally produced power, and turn it into force in the form of the war machine. Uh, and and the war machine is not just you know tanks; it's the entire enterprise, and it projects itself into that periphery. And so force generates a counter force, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You know, some of this stuff, uh, 10 year olds would understand. And unfortunately, you know, 50 year old leaders in Congress and parliaments don't understand. But when you drop uh, force in the form of a war machine, a division or a brigade in the periphery, it's going to generate a reaction. Hmm. Uh, and so that's that's key to understanding is not just, you know, power and force. It's, it, it's what force does when it's out there. A good calculation is almost seems to elude us of, of how exactly the force applies and is transformed into the kind of change that the liberal state wishes to see. Afghanistan keeps coming to mind as, as we um, as we come to such a critical moment now. The incredible power of the United States economy, as you suggested, and of course the incredible force of its war machine, uh, as you've illustrated, uh, was still not enough to reach the desired outcome in a country that is, uh, if you know, under basically any metric, uh, uh, economically light years behind uh, the United States. Uh, the liberal status almost had to make room for the illiberal Taliban. Now, I'm sure the Taliban has made promises of change. At, at the heart of the Taliban is still a very much a religious uh, mission and perhaps a uh, an application of that religion uh, that is certainly more um, more conservative. So, how why is this the case? Why uh, how much power is enough power? How much force is enough force to go into a country halfway around the world and say, uh, we need you to be liberal? Well, the short answer is there. There's no amount of power, and there's really no amount of force 
that can overcome that I, what I call the identity advantage, uh, the ability to transmit these uh, this existential this feeling of existential threat from one generation to the other. You know, you, you bring up Afghanistan because that's been uh, you know a part of our lives for twenty years. But uh, to me, if you go back to the nineteen fifties, uh, France and Algeria. You know, France had France believe was the first to believe it had this uh, humanitarian mission to uh, civilize uh, the other uh, in Algeria, and it it you know it, it tried for for many years, and Algeria got its independence, and then thirty years later devolved into a horrible civil war in the nineties. Uh, so so you know, if history is a guide, there there may not be much hope for Afghanistan, but. One of the things that I, uh, you're leading towards is this idea of preemption, right? So if uh, if great powers like the United States and France and the Soviet Union uh, can't go into this periphery and change things with its war machine, what can the war machine do to secure a liberal state? And and that was uh, towards the end of the book. I really kind of got into that. And I talked about preemption. It's uh, preemption is the idea that. Uh, technology allows us to do violence uh, below the perception of of the public, uh, and and that's that's really problematic. One of the things that comes to mind is is now the future of counterterrorism. We'd be wrong to think things are sort of uh, now with the extinction of Daesh, if we want to call it that. Uh, there's always a temporary lull, and and it almost seems to work in a cyclical fashion that we have the, the next group, and as you suggested, you know the linkage between Al Qaeda to Boko Haram, and then the next thing that comes along. If force and power are not enough to go into these countries and and eradicate it at the root, what lessons can can we draw? I mean, if force and power is not enough to defend against the illiberal other, in this case, the, the weaponized, what can we do outside of force and power? The, certainly the, the U.S. Department of Defense and, and a lot of Western countries uh, and authoritarian countries have gone this route of using technology uh, to, to kind of uh, allow them to see everything uh, before it happens. And so there was this, uh, you know, a, a long time ago, a one country would attack another country, the second country would defend itself and then attack. And then we kind of said, okay, well, we don't want to wait to get attacked. So we came up with these theories of preventative war. And we said, oh, well, when that country is massing troops on the border, uh, what we'll do is we'll do a preventative attack. We'll attack those troops and that preventative war will then, will then it, it's, it's, it, it's a smaller war than if we wait for the attack. And now we've kind of slid into this preemption where the idea that uh, another state or another group might attack us is enough to generate the application of force in the periphery. And, and that's where technology comes in, right? So we have these drones. Uh, Camille wrote, uh, is a French fellow, wrote a great book about seven or eight years ago called The Theory of the Drone. And it's basically that uh, the drone, it just hovers, technology hovers above life as life is occurring and then it, the technology allows decision makers to decide, I don't like the way this is going. It is, it is illiberal, and therefore it is against my way of life. There, if it's against my way of life, it's a threat, and so we must destroy it. And so it's the marriage of this, this kind of high technology and artificial intelligence, because it takes artificial intelligence to really gather all this information mm. uh, that, that really... Uh, 
uh, bodes ill for the future of warfare. One of the questions that comes to mind when you say this is, it doesn't seem as though technology really offers a, offers a solution to this contradiction, but rather the opposite. What you're describing is a, is a sort of hellish dystopia by which we say, not only is the liberal state unable to resolve this contradiction, it's actually just going to employ technology to wash its hands clean and say, uh, you know, this doesn't exist, and actually just make this even worse. It's it is. I, I, I'm, I'm on the side that uh, preemption of this kind uh, does make things worse. And, you know, we talked about contradictions of contradictions of contradictions. And I said that, you know, one of the things that liberalism has is it has this mechanism to correct itself, this openness and this dialogue. Uh, what has happened in the, in the West, particularly with the United States, is that drone strikes uh, occur below the level of public perception. And this really goes to the, the sense of justice. And I got to walk the dog a little bit. So this, this is uh, kind of some high philosophy here, but, but justice requires risk, right? The risk to the party administering the justice. That, that means that if I'm going to take it upon myself to kill you, there is a risk to me to do so. And I am willing to accept that risk. So let's go back to December 7th, 1941. Uh, Japan attacked the United States. The United States voted to go to war. They said, we will go to war. We risk war, death to millions and millions of Americans in order to get justice for the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, if you fast forward to 2021, these drone strikes are, are being controlled by uh, the Department of Defense. And, and, and some would say the CIA is still conducting them, although there's discussion that uh, it's been taken out of the hands of the CIA. But is that justice when the perpetrators of the justice cannot be touched? So if in the liberal periphery in these areas in the Sinai, uh, uh, in Yemen, in Somalia, when a drone strike occurs, they, they can't fight back. There's no, there's no person standing across the valley from them. There's no person in the building with them. And so if there's no risk to this country executing the drone strikes, is that really just war? And that, that is the problem with, uh, with high technology and with AI, uh, because if the public isn't at risk, the public doesn't care. Nothing, very little has changed for Americans uh, in particular since 9-11. Uh, we still go shopping, our economy is still growing, we're still buying cars and homes, uh, and yet, thousands and thousands of people are being killed in our name. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so if there's no risk to me, then I, I don't, you know, I don't care. The, the average American will not advocate for a change in this policy. And so the policy runs amok and the policymakers say, well, drone strikes are work. They're cheap. Let's keep doing it. Visibility is such a key factor here. Immediately what comes to my mind as well is distance because one of the challenges, uh, and this goes back thousands of years, but one of, one of the challenges to warfare uh, has been the, the almost the emotional heat of the moment decision of the soldier to kill another soldier. Mm -hmm. And you, you traditionally, you need a lot of mythos. <laughs> you need a lot of ideology. You need to, whatever, a concoction of all kinds of things to convince a human being, go out there and, and kill as many as you can today, tomorrow, the day mm -hmm. after. And, and in a way, I think it could also say, well, that is a, a natural barrier for liberal states not to engage in too much uh, illiberal 
means of destruction. You know, the way that you could think of the, the Wehrmacht in World War II uh, zealed up with their mission. Liberal states don't tend to think of their armies this way and, and don't train their soldiers to become death machines uh, because there's a visibility aspect to doing that. Mm -hmm. you know, the American public in this case would know, hey, uh, you know, what are you doing? But the interesting thing about you just mentioned with these drone strikes is how invisible it is, not only to the public that is ultimately responsible for enacting policy, um, but also to the, the practitioner, because I think there was there was a study, I'm quoting things off my hat here, but um, there was a study that measured how much distance from the, the event uh, taking place. Uh, in mm -hmm. this case, you have a, a drone operator that could be you know thousands of miles away and the drone itself doing the killing. And there was a, a lot less reprehension, a, a lot less of a barrier to being able to execute to mm -hmm. kill, uh, the more distanced you are. And I wonder if we can apply that to a, a more macro scale. Is technology blurring that visibility? Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, I think you might be referring to the, the psychological cost of killing by uh, a fellow named Grossman came out about, uh, about 1995, 1996. And he, he mentioned that, um, the, the, what it takes to stab a man, uh, because you're that close, you, you feel his breath, you feel his blood, that the toll, the emotional toll is much higher. Uh, and it lessens as the, as the various means of violence are used, pistol, rifle, artillery, bombers. Um, and, and so, yeah, so there's, there's very much a, 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 that, that distance aspect you talked about. There's physical and emotional. And what drones have done is it's removed both the physical distance, you know, the physical distance has increased quite a bit, and that the emotional distance has uh, has has somewhat increased. I have read some interesting uh, articles, uh, some some research done that says the drone operators in Nevada, uh, these drones hover for eight, nine, ten hours. Uh, they get to know these people, uh, these young men, are are husbands and sons and fathers, and they're with their families, and they're at a celebration, and then they get in their car, and the order comes to you know execute the drone strike. And so there's a, there, there still is an emotional cost, but, but it goes back to this idea of justice, right? That the soldier uh, always is told that you did it because we are seeking justice. And so when they come back and they have their emotional problems, there's this emotional toll. Ultimately, they are told you are not a murderer. You are executing justice. You are an executioner. You're not a murderer. But, but uh, they, they, for me, the idea is that if the American public is not at risk, um, then it doesn't feel the, the, the pressure to address the policies. Uh, and so policymakers are using technology uh, in a way that uh, is, is probably going to backfire at some point when these uh, peripheral groups, these illiberal groups in the periphery say, we can't fight back against these drones. Uh, so let's go to Nevada and we'll blow up shopping malls and we'll kill people in their homes there. Mm. Uh, that's that's the horrifying thought for me uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I can uh, certainly share how horrifying of a future that would be. One of the questions that springs to mind, as uh, as you've just mentioned, that is when we think about where all of this leads, uh, you think about the immediate future in the next five, ten years and how the liberal states will develop. Do you think it's more likely that the liberal will finally defeat, consume and eat the illiberal? 
or that uh, technology actually transforms us into the illiberal monster? I'm I'm something of an optimist. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, like I said, liberal states take a long time to change, but I think it's finally happening. I think after 20 years, there's less of an appetite uh, to go in and, and, and transform these areas into, you know, Springfield, Virginia, or, you know, New York City, or, or whatever the case may be. I think there's an understanding that for these, these, these tribal patriarchal groups, uh, uh, it, change will occur. They, they will come into the present, you know, cell phones, the proliferation of consumer technology like that makes it ever harder for small groups of elites, uh, patriarchs, as it, as it were, to maintain power, mm-hmm. to keep triggering that call to violence uh, through those ethnic ties. Uh, so, I, so I'm an optimist there. I, 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 the appetite just isn't there any longer, I think. Uh, and, and we've seen it. Uh, the president, uh, Biden, has, has said, it's over. We're getting out of Afghanistan you know, what the future holds for Afghanistan, you know, we can talk about, you know, we said Algeria 30 years later had its own civil war. I think similar things will happen in Afghanistan, but, uh, but no, the, the, uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that there's, there's no real amount of power or force that's going to overcome that identity advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will fade over time. I certainly hope you are right as a liberal myself, but uh, I think it's, and I can certainly share in a vision of the future that you just said in which, and, and if I can rephrase it here slightly, one in which the liberal state has learned to coexist almost with the liberal and a perfect example perhaps is saying, okay, you know, the Taliban seems to not be going anywhere. Maybe the best approach is one of coexistence, but with a sort of tacit understanding that eventually we hope you'll change. <laughs> We're going to try the nice way now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but it's interesting, you know, there's always uh, sort of at the, at the back of the argument, there's always an implication that uh, we, we can coexist, but eventually you're going to have to liberalize. Can there ever be a coexistence in which the world says, uh, you know, there's certain areas of the world that will likely just never become liberal because of X factors? Or is that transformative mission always somehow baked into it? I, I think the, the, the urge to transform this humanitarian impulse is, is beginning to fade. There's an une- uneasy coexistence uh, in the United States defense posture. You know, the policies are now one of... Um, Taliban, you can you can do what you, you're going to do in Afghanistan. But if you come out of Afghanistan, if you come to New York City or Chicago, uh, we're going to we're going to stop that. There are still problems with preemption. There's still problems with the hovering eye. Um, uh, but uh, I think that, yeah, we're 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 settling into an uneasy coexistence. Um, the idea is that illiberal states are a greater existential threat to the West, Russia, China, than groups like the Taliban or ISIS or Boko Haram. I, I do believe that you know France is heavily engaged in Africa. I think the United States and Great Britain will remain engaged in uh, low-level uh, conflict management, uh, if I can coin a phrase, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, you know, Australia will always be there with us. But I, I think the we're, we're kind of going back towards uh, a more uh, traditional uh, international relations arena in which you know it's 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 the great powers that co- that are existential threats to each other, uh, and and we will exist like you said uh, uneasily, but we will coexist with groups like the Taliban and ISIS. Now we're always going to try to manage 
our uh, our pyramid, right? Like the United States has allies and partners and clients all throughout the world who are under threat from these groups. And so there's always going to be some engagement. We're, we're, we're simply not just going to be hands off. Um, One of the quotes that I picked out here from, from your work in Ouroboros 2017, and I'll just quote it straight at you, a never-ending war of maintenance that sees terrible deeds done in the name of a great good. Now, I'm probably taking this quote completely out of context, so you'll have to correct me, but what I understood from this is largely what we've been talking about today, about this transformative mission of liberalism, and of course, once it identifies this liberal target, singling it out for sometimes an aggressive excursion to say, right, we're going to liberalize you. But this is markedly different to the more positive end that we have here today, So, uh, which is one, of, of course, of being able to see coexistence and seeing real-life examples of this playing out. Have these last four years um, changed your mind and would you end the book differently now? Uh, I, I think that even with our disengagement from Afghanistan and, and Iraq, uh, there, there'll still be violence being done. I, I just don't think that the United States is going to put 100,000 troops uh, in these small places any longer. Uh, the West has, like I said, clients. It has its own pyramids of uh, cooperation. And, and, and so that, that will occur. Nigeria is a partner with the United States. We both have common goals against Boko Haram. Uh, we, uh, we support countries uh, as part of the AU mission in Somalia against Al-Shabaab. Um, uh, we're working uneasily uh, with, with uh, Turkey. Uh, and of course, we're still in Iraq supporting Iraq against ISIS. And so the, the war of maintenance may not make it into the headlines, but it's still going to be occurring. Coexistence doesn't mean an end to violence. So things are, are still going to be done. Uh, I just uh, I don't think that uh, you're going to see 100,000 troops uh, from any Western country put into some of these places, uh, not for the foreseeable future. Well, I certainly hope not. One last question that I've got for you today, uh, Phil is a bit of a strange one. But uh, throughout today, of course, we've been talking about international relations. We've been talking in the big picture. We've been talking about almost United States foreign policy, foreign relations. There's always the, the other which is on a map that you can point to. But actually, this question is uh, flipping it on its head. And it's if we can actually internalize some of the conclusions that we've reached uh, today uh, that you explore more in your book um, about this, this contradiction and this transformative element that we can find within liberalism, uh, the liberal state. But if we can internalize that into the liberal section of society, uh, because perhaps it would be wrong to assume of the liberal state as entirely liberal, or, or certainly mm -hmm. there are hierarchies of liberalism within the mm -hmm. liberal state, including very unliberal elements. Uh, and I'm sure the US this year with the storming of the US Capitol and uh, all of the drama mm -hmm. of the last four years of the Trump presidency can uh, attest to that. But looking at this as an internal political dimension, can, can we see a correlation between a liberal segment, a liberal party, if you will, uh, that has a transformative zeal that definitely believes themselves to, uh, in many cases, uh, have the moral upper hand and, and see themselves as progressive is a word they use, mm -hmm. uh, against uh, the illiberal other, uh, perhaps a more conservative element in society that does not wish to be transformed. Is there any parallel here? And can you talk to us about that? Sure, uh, sure there is. You know, the uh, identity 
politics and identity conflict, uh, the, the rules of that are, are basically the same anywhere. You know, in the United States after January 6th, a lot of people realize that, you know, there's about 20 to 25 percent of the U.S. population broadly in the South and uh, some, some, some in the West uh, that sees themselves put upon by the lowercase l liberal progressive policies that that seek greater civil rights and greater uh, wealth uh, redistribution. Uh, and and what I what I tell everyone is, a hey, you know, we need to lower the boiling point a little bit. We need to uh, reduce some of the rhetoric uh, because what we're doing is by identifying ourselves as we are the good. You are you are making other people go what I'm bad. And then when they feel that they're under threat, they, they tie themselves closer together and that rhetoric becomes extreme, right? Because everyone wants to be heard. And so one person says one thing, the next person doubles down on it. And then the echo chamber of social media kind of brings it all to this boiling point. And, you know, 20 to 25% of Americans only are listening to themselves. And now they feel that there's a war on white, or, or something to that effect, the election was stolen or, or something to that effect. Uh, but yeah, identity politics and identity conflict uh, are, are tricky. And I just, I always encourage everyone I talk to to just dial it back a little bit. Um, farmers are farmers uh, and they're good people, but let's not trigger them. And, you know, progressives in New York City are, are good people. Uh, let's not trigger them. Let's understand that there's multiple ways to uh, to be good people. Well, we might disagree on New Yorkers, certainly, Phil. But <laughs> I say this as a as a NYU alumni. Uh, but I certainly agree with you. I think that that the lessons that we that we have collectively in the West learned uh, about coexistence uh, and uh, as a path forward between states could be applied to us as well in our lives uh, and and domestically at home. And with that, Phil, I want to thank you so much for taking part of this wonderful, brilliant conversation with uh, a lot of questions that will have a lot of questions to them as well. And so having said that, it would be a privilege and an honor to have you over for another episode. Dr. Philip Reynolds is a prolific man and he's written a lot of things. So I'm sure uh, our audiences would uh, would love to have you back. But of course, um, thank, you. thank you so much for taking part today and uh, hope we'll hear back from you soon. And that concludes the second part of my interview with Dr. Philip Reynolds on the subjects of war, liberal states, terrorism, and more. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of MI Cynic. If you want to listen to our other episodes, leave your comments and feedback, or to support this project, please consider following us on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and of course, to check out our website at www.micynic.com. I hope to see you there for next time and wish each of you a great rest of your week.